So good to see each of you here this morning. We are continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. And we've reached the point, we're in the final two chapters of this Gospel, where we're talking about how that message is being delivered through the events of the resurrection. I've been thinking as I was looking at the passage we're going to be looking at today, what is faith for? Is it for celebration, for victory, for joy, for abundance? Is faith for those moments when we're shouting out songs of praise at the top of our lungs, when we're joyfully celebrating our King Jesus? Is it for those moments when God heals from an illness, when he grants us that new, better job we needed, when he enables us to purchase a home? Or is faith for the dark days? when you receive unexpected news that somebody close and dear has just passed away and they're gone. When you suffer a miscarriage. When the diagnosis is cancer and God does not heal. I'd like to suggest that faith is for both of these extremes. It raises our highs to glorious heights and in the depths It provides the buoyancy we need to remain afloat. No matter the tempest, no matter the darkness, it secures us through the darkness. Today we're going to look at some people on what I suspect was the darkest day of their walks of faith. We're in John chapter 20. And we're looking at the first 10 verses. I have titled today's message, Seeing and Believing. Let's start in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene is coming early, while it is still dark, to the tomb. And she sees that the stone has been moved away from the tomb. So she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and tells them, They have moved the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. John takes a different approach to talking about the resurrection from the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, where uh, they describe a group of women going to the tomb. All four Gospels say that they went very early. Uh, one of the other synoptics talks about the sun having just come up, the, the, right when it was light. But uh, John, instead of focusing on this group of women who is heading out at the crack of dawn to go to the tomb, he focuses on one individual. And this is common in John. You'll notice in his gospel, he takes a lot of time to look at individuals And perhaps that's one of the reasons witness is such an important theme in John's gospel. He's not just talking about general information that's out there. He wants us to follow individuals in their encounter with Jesus and to participate with them in their witness to who Jesus has been. And Mary is a very significant person he's going to track with through this resurrection event. I wonder what that morning was like for her. If the other women, if they headed out right as the sun came up, John tells us that Mary was out before the sun even came up. It was still dark when she headed out. Perhaps she was the most eager of the whole group to get to that 
tomb. I wonder what that Sabbath was like for Mary, kicking off the uh, week of unleavened bread, that high holy Sabbath surely was the saddest Sabbath Mary had ever lived. Jesus had changed everything in her life. Luke 8, 2 tells us that she had been tormented by seven demons, and Jesus freed her from them. Her life was an absolute wreck, and she was at the mercy of evil forces that were only intent on destroying her life. And surely her life had no hope before Jesus showed up and broke her free from all of that. And she has just witnessed that Jesus die on a cross, spread out, buck naked for the world to gawk at bleeding and in agony as hecklers at the foot of the cross are mocking him. And she waited, but no angel came down from heaven and put a stop to the spectacle. God the Father didn't tear the heavens apart and come down and get his son off that cross. Jesus died. When we suffer a loss like that, I think we, we normally just go into some kind of an emotional uh, numbness, shock. I suspect that from that Friday night and Sabbath, they all had to rest. They couldn't do work. It was the Sabbath. I think the thing that carried Mary through that Sabbath was her plan. As soon as Sabbath is over, as soon as there's light Sunday, enough to get to the tomb and do anything, I am going to run down to that tomb, and I'm going to wash the blood and grime off of him, and I'm going to wrap him up and show him all the honor and love that was denied him in his death. I am going to do this final act of devotion and love. And I'll bet that's all she thought about that Sabbath. The, the morning and the gaping hole, all of that would come later. As long as she could focus on the task at hand, she could forestall the full depth of agony she knew she'd have to face eventually. I'll get to the tomb, and I will honor him the best way I know how. So before the sun is even up, it's still dark. She's already on her way. But when she gets there, the other Gospels tell us that this group of women, as they're making their way to the tomb, are talking to each other. Who's going to roll that stone away for us? We're, we're not going to be strong enough to do that. How are we going to get that stone rolled away from the entrance to get in there and do what we're trying to do? When they get there, the stone's already been moved away. But there's no Jesus. So... 
Mary runs and goes back to where the disciples are staying, wherever that is, and finds Simon Peter and John. And again, as he does throughout this whole gospel, John never mentions himself by name. I suspect when John wrote this gospel, he was the last remaining living apostle. And I think it's no mistake that he very much refuses to throw his name around in the gospel. He doesn't want himself to be the center of attention in this gospel. He wants Jesus to be the center of attention in the gospel, which is why he only refers to himself in the gospel obliquely as the man whom Jesus loved. Everything you could say about John that is of any importance is only that way because Jesus loved him. So she finds Peter and John and tells them they have moved the Lord out of the tomb. Now it's true that at this time the word Lord was used in two senses. The Jews would use it with the definite article, the Lord, to talk about God, the Lord of all. But Lord was also a title you would use just to show respect to someone, like saying, Sir. She's clearly not using the word that way here because she uses the definite article. It's the Lord. And that's the way Jews would talk about God. The Lord. They have moved the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Notice that even though John never mentions the other women, in the words of Mary, he indicates that there was more than one person there. She says, we don't know where they've laid him. So uh, in the words of Mary, this corresponds with the witness of the other Gospels, that it wasn't just Mary alone, even though John is only going to focus on Mary uh, in that group of women. Uh, in her words, it's clear that there was this group of women who went to the tomb. And in the other Gospels, we're given information that they encounter an angel. Mark, Matthew and Mark say one angel. Luke says it's two angels. And they give some instructions to the women. John skips over that because he's really interested in following Mary's one encounter. Not with the angel, but with Jesus himself. Perhaps the other Gospels don't mention that because in the first century, women were not considered reliable witnesses. You, you wouldn't accept the testimony of a woman in court because in the patriarchal thinking of the first century, women were too emotional and flighty and unreliable. Uh, perhaps that's the reason. Uh, John doesn't seem to be that concerned with it because he will focus on Mary's encounter with Jesus. And we'll talk about that next week. This moment, I think, represents a, a kind of moment maybe we've experienced in our own lives where we're striving to pursue God, we're trying to uh, reach out to Him in genuine devotion, and sometimes even the best efforts we're making seem to be met with nothing but frustration and roadblocks every step of the way. And Mary here is hanging on by a thread, planning this loving final act of devotion to Jesus, and even this is taken from her. When have you found yourself trying to love God only to find everything going wrong? Have you ever had a moment like that? Sometimes we think that shouldn't happen. It can't happen. If you're genuine in your devotion to God, surely God's never going to let you go through a circumstance like that. Well, Mary very much went through that. 
Let's keep reading verse 3. So Peter went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead more quickly than Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look, he sees the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter arrives also following him, and he entered into the tomb, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place separately. Peter. I wonder what that Saturday was like for him. The fact that Peter and John head out together and John gets there before him. Some people through history have uh, assumed that that means that John was younger than Peter. That uh, because of that he was in better shape and was able to get to the tomb more quickly and Peter was perhaps a little older and not able to get there as quickly. I don't know that we can uh, assume that from the information we have here. But I wonder what that Sabbath was like for Peter. You know, the last thing Jesus heard Peter say was him swearing and cursing and trying desperately to convince the people around him that he didn't know Jesus. Peter knew it because he locked eyes with Jesus there in the courtyard of Annas right at that moment. And the rooster crowed and he ran out and wept bitterly. So that Sabbath for Peter wasn't just dealing with the numbing shock that Jesus was dead. The gaping hole in their lives. They had left everything to follow him. Now he's gone. That is bad enough. But Peter had added to that his catastrophic failure. How do you ever come back from that? I mean, how, how do you fix something like that? So he's, he's dealing with the loss of Jesus and he's dealing with the terrifying realization that he's not nearly as good a guy as he thought he was. And that he has failed Jesus horribly. Maybe it was the weight of that that slowed him down. Made it hard for him to get to the tomb quickly. But when he gets there, he doesn't just peek in. And we're told that John stooped to look in. And that's because tombs like this generally were maybe a yard high, the entrance. So you, you, there's no way to get in without stooping. Uh, so he looks in but doesn't go in. He sees the linen cloths lying there. It doesn't go in. But when Peter gets there, he goes right in. And he not only is able to see, and, and these tombs would have some kind of a, uh, a, t uh, a countertop type thing where you would lay the body to decompose. Uh, so John was able to see enough to notice that the linen cloths were there on the, on the table, uh, on, the, on the countertop. But when Peter gets in there, he sees that, yeah, there are the linen cloths. But separate from that is the, the cloth that had been used to cover his head. Not 
bunched up with the linen cloths, but lying separately. Some people suggest that when it says here that it was folded up in a place separately, it could also mean rolled uh, in a place separately. And some suggest that maybe this head cloth was wrapped around his head like so, and that somehow when Jesus rose, he, he kind of just left the clothes behind and, and passed right through them in his resurrection, so that they were just left there crumpled on the table. Uh, or it could just be that the, the linen cloths are folded up here and then there's the, the head cloth is folded separately from the others. It's impossible to know with certainty. But they get in there and that's the sight they see. Now, it doesn't take a genius to uh, put two and two together here. Jesus isn't there. Now, how could you possibly explain that? Well, maybe one of the disciples took him. Well, obviously, no, because they just got there and they're as surprised as anybody else about it. They have no idea. So it wasn't them. Maybe the Romans decided, no, we're not going to give this guy a decent burial after all. We're going to throw him into the common criminal tomb where, like we throw all the criminals. Maybe the Romans took him and relocated the body to the common grave where they buried their criminals. Well, if they had done that, would they have bothered to unwrap the body and leave the cloths there? That makes no sense. They already had it all done. They could just grab it, carry it out, and dump it wherever they needed to dump it. There's no way they would have wasted time unwrapping the body. Maybe it was grave robbers who got in and stole. Well, that was a very uncommon thing in Jewish life in the first century. That would not happen very often given their feelings about touching corpses and all that kind of thing. And certainly if anybody had done that, they would have had to do it on the Sabbath, which would be doubly uncommon in Jerusalem. Jews wouldn't work on the Sabbath. But suppose somebody had gone in there to rob this grave. Well, what did Jesus have in that tomb that was of any value? There were two things that might have had some value. One was the 75 pounds of spices that they had wrapped, with, wrapped him with. And the other was the linen cloths themselves. Because in antiquity, there were not uh, mechanized uh, ways of making cloth. You had to weave the cloth by hand, and this was tremendously labor-intensive. So clothing in antiquity was a very valuable thing. We read in the Old Testament about times where people are rewarded or given payment for things by giving them changes of clothes. So if there was anything of value, it wasn't the body of Jesus. If a grave robber had showed up, he would have taken the, the cloth. He would have taken the spices, perhaps, and certainly would not have taken the body. Or if he was in a hurry, he would have taken the whole thing, wrapped as it was, and then taken it somewhere private where they could take off the things they wanted and then leave the body. But what no grave robber would ever have done is take the body and leave everything else. The body was of no value. One very important theme in John's gospel is the idea of bearing witness. Not just 
having expert testimony, somebody who knows a lot of information, has researched a lot. No, John is very interested in us hearing eyewitness testimony. What has happened that people have witnessed themselves. And what he's done here is provide us the eyewitness testimony of two men who were both on that Sunday morning inside the very tomb where Jesus was buried. And they both can verify that the body was not there, but everything else that might have been of value was still there. The normal conclusion is that some of the explanations that people would try to provide afterward to dismiss the idea of the resurrection of Jesus simply do not correspond to the facts. It couldn't have been the Romans, and it couldn't have been somebody stealing the body. It wasn't a disciple because they were as perplexed about it as anybody else. And John is providing two witnesses, which in Jewish thought was what was necessary to establish the veracity of a witness. He is giving his readers clear indication that when I'm telling you that Jesus rose from the dead, this isn't something that somebody else convinced me about. This is something I witnessed firsthand, and this is exactly what I saw that Sunday morning. So thinking about Peter, he had failed Jesus miserably. And yet he ran to the tomb along with John and found it empty. How have you seen God do great things even in your moments of greatest failure? Let's keep reading verse 8. Then the other disciple who had arrived first at the tomb entered also, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that it is necessary for him to rise from the dead. So the disciples returned to their own. So now John arrives. Uh, and Well, I'm sorry, John's already there. But John, who had arrived first at this point, enters in after Peter. And he sees everything he's just described. And he tells us that he saw it. And he believed. When he saw that, he did the math. Okay, the Romans didn't take him. Somebody didn't steal this. None of us took him. Oh, you know what? Jesus did say over and over, not only that he was going to be crucified, but that on the third day he was going to rise. Oh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Ooh, look at that. And he believed. He believed that Jesus had done what he said. Now, obviously, the disciples this whole time, on the way from, from uh, Capernaum down to Jerusalem, he's told them three times that he's going to be crucified. Clearly, the disciples thought Jesus was being metaphorical. He often was. He, he taught in parables. He often said things that clearly were meant to be understood uh, figuratively. You know, if you don't drink my blood, you will not live. The disciples were right to understand that Jesus meant that metaphorically. 
So they seem to think that this talk about dying and rising was some kind of spiritualization of some concept or principle and they were still trying to figure all that out. But at this moment, John sees those cloths all there on the, t- on the countertop and he says, you know what? Jesus is alive. I don't know where he is. I don't know what this means. I don't know what the next step is. But he said he was going to rise. And John, looking back decades later, says, that's the moment. That's the moment I knew Jesus was alive. When I saw those cloths. That's when I knew. But notice what else he says. For they, and he's, he's including himself and the rest of the disciples, they did not understand the scripture that it is necessary for him to rise from the dead. It's very interesting to me that John separates faith in Jesus from a full and proper understanding of Scripture. Sometimes we may think that uh, all we need to do is just study the Bible and uh, dig into Scripture and get our theology all ironed out and figured out and straight and make sure our theology is, is right and orthodox and there you go, that'll resolve everything. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but there are theologians in the world who don't know a thing about Jesus, who have made it the study of their lives. Their academic career has been constructed on studying theology of the New Testament even and have no idea who Jesus is. Because Jesus is not a book. He's a person. And Scripture bears witness to Jesus. But it is the encounter with Jesus that is is what faith life is about. And we have that encounter apart from Scripture. That's why there are people who walk with God before there even was Scripture. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, not a one of them had one verse of Scripture to consult. But they walked with God. Because the relationship God's calling to, calling us to, is a faith relationship with Him that is separate from the reality of the Bible. Now, When John says they did not yet understand that scripture, from the scripture that it is necessary for him to rise from the dead, and he never quotes what scripture he has in mind, but if we look at the witness of the prophets from the Old Testament, not only did they indicate the necessity of the Messiah's death, that he would be the suffering servant who by his wounds we would be healed, who would bear the iniquities of others who would be pierced for our transgressions. They they said that, but they also said that this Messiah would be established as king on the throne of David forever. And he would not only establish the eternal kingdom of God, but he would be the king to sit on the throne of that kingdom forever. So it is necessary, according to Scripture, not only that the Messiah die, but that he live eternally 
Eventually, John came to understand all of that. But that Sunday morning, he didn't have a clue. He didn't know what this meant. All he knew was Jesus, the one in whom he had put his faith and whom he was following, was no longer dead. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what he was about to do. He didn't know what the next step in this whole crazy journey would be. But that moment he knew he's alive. And Jesus did all of this. He uh, appeared to the disciples multiple times. John's going to mention several of these encounters before he ascended to the Father. And he's going to share with them, and Luke will tell us how he's going to open their understanding to see how the whole Scripture is tied up in him. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that faith in Jesus means you don't study the Bible. I'm just saying that our faith in Jesus is what guides our study of the Bible. Our relationship with Jesus is what illuminates our true understanding of Scripture. We can't just study the Bible and leave Jesus out of it. We have to come to Jesus in faith. That's why the two halves of our walk in Christ in many ways are our, our, our personal walk with God is prayer, where we are communicating with God and listening to Him. And as a church, we're doing this on Monday nights. We are asking God, reveal to us, what is your will? What do you want to see happen? And make us conform to whatever it is you're up to. And thank you so much, of those of you who have been coming. I encourage you to continue doing that because this relationship with God happens as we actually communicate with Him and listen to Him and talk to Him. And then from that real relationship with Christ comes the illumination that makes Scripture bear its fruit. We come to the Word of God illuminated by Christ and he opens it up to our understanding. John is in the initial stages of a crazy journey that's going to be decades long, the rest of his life, walking with the risen Lord. This is the moment he first understands that Jesus is alive. So they go back to the rest of the disciples, to their own people. John believed in Jesus, and his faith came before his understanding of Scripture. How have you experienced the same kind of thing in your walk with Jesus? Faith in Jesus is inevitably going to place us in difficult moments, moments of profound loss and trauma. It's the nature of living in this fallen world and loving God provides no protection, no exemption from suffering in this world the way everybody does. As we strive to pursue lives of genuine devotion the way Mary Magdalene was trying to do that Sunday morning, at times we will find that our noblest efforts and intents are frustrated. Sometimes we'll face moments of profound failure, as Peter did. Moments where we 
begin to wonder just how far does God's willingness to forgive extend? Just, just how deep is that love? There are going to be moments where God seems absent. When we thought he would be present. But we can find just the way John did in the subtle signals of that empty tomb. That Jesus is exactly who he tells us he is. And that he is worthy of our faith even in those darkest moments. Because he truly delivers on everything he's promised to us. From this relationship with Jesus grounded in faith. We then turn to the scriptures which he unlocks for us. And we gain from him levels of understanding we never knew before. I don't know where you stand this morning. If you know Jesus the way John is describing. You know him because you have put your faith in him and you may not understand everything about the Bible. You may not understand everything about yourself or the world, but this you know. Jesus is your Savior and Lord. If that doesn't describe you, I want to encourage you today to take that first step of reaching out to him and saying, Jesus, I want to put my trust in you, my faith in you, and I want you to initiate me on this journey. I want you to unlock my understanding. And I want you to carry me through the joyous highs and the deepest lows of life. I want you to be the one carrying me through it all. If that's you this morning, don't wait another day. Begin the relationship today. Maybe you already know him. And today there's been a reminder of some sort, something God is laying on your heart that you need to change or you need to adjust in your walk with him. Whatever he's laying on your heart, do not resist. You can know, regardless of what anybody else may or may not do any day of your life, God is always seeking what is absolutely best for your life. There's never any reason to resist Him. This is our time to respond to His Word. We're going to have people at the back. Let's all stand, and I'd ask the people who are going to assist us in the back on either side where the blinds are. Uh, to provide just a little bit of privacy. If God has laid any decision or commitment on your heart, let me ask you to go to either side here at the back. And these are just uh, people who are following Christ and just want to pray with you and encourage you. Take advantage of this time to respond in any way God lays on your heart. Come while we sing.